Hello, Roy here. I just wanted to let you know that you can listen to The Roy Green Show ad-free on Amazon Music, included with Prime. If you're struggling to lose weight, you've probably heard about weight loss medications like Wigovi or ZepBound, and you might be wondering if they're right for you. Meet Plush Care, a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. If you qualify, they can safely prescribe you medication from the comfort of your own home. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. In Ontario tomorrow, according to Doug Ford, garden centers and nurseries, lawn care and landscaping can start. Touchless car washes, golf courses can be prepped, but you can't play yet. Car dealerships can reopen, but by appointment only. And there are other, of course, uh, individual changes in provinces across Canada. And we'll try to get some more of those on for you before the end of the show. We are uh, fortunate uh, each weekend to have an opportunity to speak with Dr. Isaac Bogosh, infectious diseases specialist and scientist at uh, Toronto General Hospital and uh, the University of Toronto. And uh, you you give so much time, Dr. Bogosh, I I feel like I ought to send your wife flowers. I, I better too. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> You're better, yeah, yeah. Thank you for act these days. But you know, in all fairness, like uh, I had a good weekend. Got a lot of time with the family, so it's just not an issue at all. Happy to chat. Well, thank you, and you're doing a great service for people because there are so many questions, and there are new questions that arise all the time. Uh, a lot of them have to do with when will a vaccine be ready? We see one report or another report. We have one story saying it could take 25 years, another saying three to five years is average. And then I saw a story earlier today: be prepared for a vaccine in two years. Is there a timeline? Can we can we hang our hats on on a number? And then if there is a vaccine. I'm asking the, the the obvious question. How do you know, how can you tell that it's going to help a significant percentage of the population? Yeah, That's all the testing, point. I guess, right? Yeah, no, great point. So first of all, like, it's hard to make a timeline, right? The, you know, most vaccines, just like when people are developing drugs or vaccines, most fail. There's a huge failure rate. You know, there's about uh, maybe 1% to 3% of these drugs in discovery or vaccines in discovery are actually going to make it to real world use. But, uh, you know, and, and it takes time. You know, people often quote that the, the fastest vaccine to be created was the mumps vaccine, and that took four years. But I think it's also important to recognize that, you know, there's never been uh, this amount of brain power and truly unlimited resources poured into vaccine research. So you've got about 90 some odd teams working on this, all taking slightly different approaches. And you've got some really significant advances early on. I'm I'm just trying to be realistic here. I think we're going to have one on the shorter end of the spectrum. Like maybe, you know, I, I really think we might see some significant progress in a year. There's actually an amazing study out of Oxford. This group out of Oxford will have data whether or not their vaccine works in real-world settings in a study of about 6,000 people, and they'll have some early data by June. So, you know, I'm not saying we'll have a vaccine in June. I'm saying we'll know if this one that's one of the more, the leaders in the field will be working in people by June. Of course, there's more work wow. that needs to be done, but there's a lot of progress on this field. Uh, when, if we go back to, if we could uh, roll the calendar back to January when we really first started to hear about this, Although I remember reading a small story, um, just a small story, in December about a virus in China 
and uh, that it could be problematic. And I looked at it, and because I look at things now that happen as far as viruses are concerned for after the Ebola situation in the Democratic Republic of Congo. Uh, so so I'm, I just pay attention um, out of curiosity. But so if we were to go back to the early January, when or sometime in January, when we first started to become aware, when you as a as, a, as an infectious diseases specialist started to become aware of this of this virus would you have been surprised if someone had said to you then by the beginning of may this thing is going to really have stumped us uh you know i don't want to sound cocky here but like this is what i do and and in all fairness we watch very closely these infectious diseases outbreaks at the earliest earliest form and there's a field of infectious diseases that really focuses on what we call emerging and re-emerging infectious diseases so whenever we hear about this, and there's some interesting surveillance platforms all over the world, whenever we hear about unknown you know, fever in Uganda, unknown diarrheal illness in South America, unknown flu in China, we always ask ourselves, you know, is this the one? Uh, could this spread? Does this have epidemic or pandemic potential? And the answer is often, yeah, it could. But of course, most of these, in fact, the vast majority of these don't. Uh, and I first heard about this virus on December 30th uh, when it was published in this, uh, there's a surveillance, uh, computer surveillance program called ProMed Mail, which many of us in infectious diseases watch. And I, you know, I remember chatting with it about it with uh, some very close colleagues that I work with uh, very closely in this particular area. He said, well, you know, there's a bunch of cases in China. It's a, it's a flu. It's a, it looks like there's a bunch of people infected. There's a lot of unknown. So, you know, basically it raised an eyebrow. Uh, but uh, but then in, in earlier January, and what we heard about, you know, 40 some odd people, then a few hundred people, we said, OK, this is this is the real deal. We don't know if it's going to be a pandemic, but it's certainly going to be a much larger epidemic than than what uh, than what we're hearing about now. So, you know, yeah, it, it definitely had some red flags from the beginning. Um, if I say remdesivir to you. I'm not, I don't even know if I'm saying it correctly. Yeah, you so, are. Yeah, yeah. Am I? Yeah. Okay, so if I say remdesivir to you, and I can't remember how to say the other one, hydrochloroquine? Yeah, hydroxychloroquine. That's the one. Uh, too many syllables for me. If, <laughs> if, Because that was what we hung hope hung our hope on. Uh, you know, the layperson, we hung our hope on and said, oh, that, that stuff exists in large numbers. And it's helping some people. So inevitably, invariably, it's going to be the right thing. And we'll get on with our lives. Well, it wasn't. So now remdesivir, although I suppose it still has potential. I don't want to get into all that because I don't know what I'm talking about. But if if uh, if rem, if I say remdesivir, what do you say? What, what say, about this one? Let's keep an open mind here. This might have significant potential for people who are sick with this infection, sick enough to be uh, in hospital. Um, it's really interesting. Normally when we talk about, you know, do we think this is going to work or not, many of us in medicine and science have data. We can see the published paper. It's peer-reviewed. It's been vetted. We have access to the data. We can pour over it. We can think about it as a medical or a scientific community and say, you know what, we think this belongs here. Or you know what, we don't think this drug works. And based on the data available, I think these people are making big claims, but look at the data. It's, it's junk. Um, so we will we'll look at the data. The key point here is we have access to the data. What happened with remdesivir 
is we know that there was a very well-designed clinical trial, a very well-designed clinical trial, and we know the design because they published what the trial design was like. And then we saw that one of the world's leading physicians, at least, uh, you know, Dr. Anthony Fauci, uh, had a press conference and he said, you know, an independent data safety monitoring board. So these are people who have nothing to do with the study. They have no financial interest. They have no conflict. They just independently monitor the study. They said, you got to stop the study. This is unethical to continue because people who are getting remdesivir were, were having shorter hospitalizations compared to people. 11 days in hospital versus 15 days in hospital that was statistically significant. They, he also said, look, we got to stop the study. Death is not statistically significant, but if we continued on the study and continued enrolling people, they would probably have some statistical significance to reduce death. But there's a trend towards less death in people who got the study drug. We have to remember the people who were enrolled in the study were the sicker, or definitely on the sicker end of the spectrum. These were sick people in the hospital. Um, and that's all we got. And But you have a guy like Anthony Fauci saying this is the standard of care, but then you don't have, we don't have access to the data. You know, it's not really, you know, on the one hand, I get it. We're in unprecedented times. We have to sh rapidly share information and rapidly share data to make sure we can make real clinical decisions in, in, in real time. But on the other hand, you know, you can't just say this is the new standard of care without giving the world access to the data. So I think we're going to see the data very, very soon in a peer-reviewed medical journal, probably like the New England Journal of Medicine or one, you know, one of these major high-impact medical journals. And, you know, collectively, we'll decide as a medical and a scientific community whether or not the data actually backs up the claims that they make. I'm not a betting man, but I suspect, you know, these are well-designed studies. These are smart people on the data safety monitoring board. I suspect there's going to be a role for remdesivir for the sicker uh, group of people with this. And, and you know, it, it might do good. Is this going to solve all of our problems? No. It's just probably going to be one tool in the toolkit to, to really treat uh, sick people with COVID-19. That's my guess. But again, I want to see the data before, you know, we, we confirm that for sure. Yeah. When you see the various plans or the uh, the initiatives that are being undertaken by provinces to reopen gradually, how do you feel about that? Yeah, I think they're, for the most part, I think they're very reasonable and very well thought out. I mean, they're also some of the messaging, I think, has been on point as well. They said, you know, this is a, uh, this is a roadmap, not a calendar. This is, you know, here's a graded approach. If things are getting out of hand, we can always scale back. I mean, I think for by and large, I, they've been fine. I've been a little, a little nervous about Quebec, just because of their case numbers there, and and and, and their they set firm dates of I think it was it May 11th. They're going to have voluntary kids back to school, and a lot of businesses open. But Quebec aside, most of them are fair. The only thing I'd add, though, is I, I think we should really quickly open up our green spaces uh, and, and open up yes. the parks like today. I, I think it's a little silly that a lot of these beautiful outdoor places are, are really closed uh, in many municipalities and it doesn't make any sense to me. I mean, you can be outside and, be, and, and you know treat mature adults like mature adults, stay two meters apart, but go and enjoy the parks and, and be outside on a beautiful spring day. So I think that's the only thing I'd change. You and I talked a couple of weeks ago about the issue of Sweden and the fact that they haven't had a lockdown. And uh, then a few days ago, the World Health Organization pointed to Sweden as the possible likely best model. Uh, and I put possible and likely in the same sentence, which would have gotten me a fail in high school, but uh, <laughs> as the possible slash likely best model for dealing with a pandemic going forward. Uh, what do you say to that? 
Oh, we got to be careful there. I mean, I want that to work as much as anyone else. It would be amazing if that was, I, I really want that to work. It would be great. Cause then you can imagine balancing a relatively normal life, uh, without, uh, these, you know, with, without tremendous economic turmoil. But what's happening in Sweden more than ever now is the death toll is much, much higher compared to, uh, the neighbors that are, what we would consider a comparable neighbors. And, and I'm not talking about the, well, we could talk about absolute numbers of deaths, but also relative numbers of deaths per capita. Uh, you know, you look at comparable neighbors like uh, Denmark and, and, and Norway, uh, Finland. I mean, Sweden, Sweden's actually getting pummeled. Uh, and, you know, these are just, at the end of the day, these are value judgments. We all have the same data. No one has any magical data uh, that other people don't have. For the most part, we all are looking at the same data and coming up with solutions applied to our countries and our provinces and our cities. And Sweden, you know, chose to take this approach. And, and again, I'm saying, I'm not saying it's wrong. I'm just saying that that approach, if you take that approach, you can expect to have a, a higher mortality rate. It's just, and, and that's exactly what they're saying. It took a couple of weeks, but, uh, but lo and behold, they have higher, uh, a lot of cases and a lot of deaths. And, you know, this is all out of balance. Yeah, I mean, I, I, they're not stupid. They know exactly what they're doing. Um, but, uh, you know, if that's an acceptable approach then to, and that's what they believe is fine with them and they're willing to take a, a you know, a, a bit of a, a more of a bit, a, a larger hit in terms of mortality and especially an elderly population, you know, so be it. That's their prerogative. Uh, we've taken a, an approach to really do, I mean, sadly, to do our best to, to protect vulnerable populations. We know, of course, that didn't pan out, and we know all know the story about what happened in you know, Canadian long-term care facilities. Right. But, uh, but our approach really is really uh, focused on not overwhelming our healthcare system. And so far, you know, it, despite what people might think, our healthcare systems have not been overwhelmed to date. And uh, many would count that as a success because we've avoided like a New York City-style scenario. Yeah, it was tragic to read the story about the uh, the doctor who committed suicide, uh, who was a frontline uh, COVID-19 physician, and it got to be too much for her. I, I can't imagine the stresses and the pressures that you deal with on a daily basis, but thank you for everything, really, sincerely, thank you for everything you do, including speaking with us and providing us with a layman's uh, view of what is a highly developed specialty, in, which is what you do. Uh, I follow you on Twitter, as you know, and, I, and you tweeted out, and we have about a minute and a half here. Oh, yeah. You tweeted out uh, May 1st, more on uh, smell and taste disturbances in COVID-19 infection of 72 patients in Germany. Uh, decreased smell, 74%. Decreased taste, 69%. Decreased smell and taste, 68%. What are we talking about here? How does that happen? What is it? Who knows? It's really neat. Uh First of all, most upper respiratory tract infections will, everyone who's had a cold before knows that their sense of smell and their sense of taste is a little bit off for a bit. Usually it goes down and then it comes back when you get a little bit better. There might be something unique here about COVID-19 and, and loss of smell. Certainly there's anecdotal evidence that people uh, continue to have loss of smell and taste for a, a, a period after they recover. I'm dying to learn more. Actually, a, a, a neurosurgeon friend of mine and I uh, got a smell expert, believe it or not, those exist. And we're going to study this further if the government decides to give us a little bit of money for a grant. So maybe I'll have some uh, more in-depth answers for you in the weeks ahead if, if this ever gets funded, because we're interested in this. It looks neat. 
Yeah, yeah, you know what it seems to be? It seems it's like a little clue. It's like a clue that could become bigger. It's like something weird is happening here. So if we find out what it is, maybe it's going to open a big door for us somewhere down the line. Uh, or maybe yeah. I've been watching too many game shows. Uh, Dr. Bogosh, I really, really do. And on behalf of everybody listening to the show, because I got so many emails about you, thank you for the time today. Thanks for all the time you spend with us. Oh, anytime, Roy. Happy to chat with you. All the best to you, sir. Dr. Isaac Bogosh. If you want to hear more, subscribe to The Roy Green Show on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you find your favorites. And if you like what you hear, leave us a review and tell a friend. I'm Roy Green. Have a great weekend.